It is riddled in enormous great swathes of concrete with tons and tons of car parking spaces taking up precious planet Earth with nobody in them. There are no cars in the car parking spaces. Every now and again, you meet someone who seems to have built something amazing, done it the right way, and seems thoroughly nice too. Rare, I know. Well, William Butler Adams is one of those people. I was fascinated listening to the story of the origins of Brompton Bikes, from humble beginnings to where him and his team have taken it now into a global empire. More than that was the story of how he's achieved that growth. So if you're an entrepreneur, business leader, or leader in any sector, in fact, listen to this episode carefully, take notes, and be inspired. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People podcast and our amazing guest today is William Butler Adams, OBE and uh, if you don't know who he is, he's the CEO of Brompton Bikes but I'm sure everyone listening does know who he is and yeah, we've got a great set of questions lined up and we've even got Phil Jones with us as always. Say hello Phil. Um, hello, I'd like some letters after my name, I'd like GCE, <laughs> I can think of some letters, CSE. But no- <laughs> Great, great one. Great. I'm going to think of lots of letters after your name, but I'm not going to say them. Be, be, be rather rude. So, Will, the first question we ask all of our guests, and welcome, by the way. Many thanks. Um, if you could be stuck in a lift with someone, whoever you like, past, present, even future, if you can think of anyone, who would it be and why? So my answer changes as, as the world changes. And this is a bit of a cliche, but... I would like to understand more about um, the mind of Elon Musk, not not for his cars or for his uh, recent Twitter acquisition, but you know, I've spent twenty years fiddling around with a bicycle. It has not been easy. We've had all sorts of challenges, but to to have the ambition, the one that really really blew my mind is him in SpaceX designing something to go into space to come back from space and then as it gets close to earth to do a 180 degree turn and land on what is basically the end of a needle i mean it's just insane and to sort of make that happen the mind boggles and 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 he's great because he makes me feel like i haven't even started and i'm doing an absolutely rubbish job because I mean, compared to what he's been up to, what have we all been doing? We, we, we're, we're dawdling. So how on earth does he do it? I'm intrigued. That is a very, very good answer. So Will and Elon Musk in a lift together. Brilliant. Yeah, uh, Will, could you give us a taster of how you started out and your passions for business and tell us a bit about your life before Brompton Bikes? Yes. So um, I went to school. And wasn't particularly successful, but I did have to work hard to fail. So I had friends of mine who didn't seem to do any work and they did miles better than me. And I tended to work my socks off and still didn't do very well. And um, but I never quite gave up. Um, But and and so I ended up getting three C's in A level. Um, And in GCSE, I was in LMF. And if you imagine that A is for the smart people, by the time we got to me and F, I was F for the thick people, which everyone reminded me day in, day out. Um, 
but then I managed to go off for a year before I went to uni. And that really was pretty awesome because I wasn't a linguist, but I, somebody always told me if you go away for a year and you surround yourself by another language, you'll learn it. So I took a one-way ticket to Argentina and popped out of Colombia uh, nearly a year later, pretty fluent in Spanish, and travelled on my own. And, and, and lots of things went wrong. In, 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 in one particular case, I spent quite a long time in the Amazon and genuinely thought it was game over, wrote my goodbye letters to my parents, thought it was, you know, all about to end. But those experiences were great because they put life into perspective. And I think in our rarefied, spoilt world in the West, uh, in our sort of consumerist um, world where, where we're worrying about whether we own this, that or the other, when you travel and when things go wrong, it really puts life into perspective. And it also reminds you how lucky we are. We're the lucky ones. You know, there's so much challenges that are going on around the world. And, and in some respects, that fortune of being brought up in the West, being brought up in a place where we're not worrying about feeding the family and conflict or other political challenges, that sort of comes with responsibility. And I think that residing feeling has been with me ever since. And so I've always felt my education is because I have a responsibility because of the fortune of, of where I popped out in the world to um, to contribute, you know, not just to feather my own nest. Wow. And now I really feel strongly that business has such a fantastic role to contribute to solving some of the world's problems. Uh, my, my faith in politicians is sort of, sort of you know, um, withering on the vine, but business has a really strong opportunity to impact society in a good way. So that's the sort of journey. Brilliant. Uh, well, you were only 28 when you joined Brompton Bikes, so which was actually the same age I was when I started my own business. But you need, you need to be not too old great. because it's full of risk. <laughs> and you, you, you're, 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 yeah. the consequences so tell, tell of failure when you're 28 are pretty minimal. That's true. So t- tell us, I mean, how did you end up at Brompton Bikes as well, CEO at 28? Left uni, I went to Newcastle, studied engineering in Spanish. And uh, having struggled, as I said, with the education, I then really, really, really did work hard for, and came out with a first. And I was so pleased. And uh, it was not easy. Uh, I think I sneaked in by the skin of my teeth. But I was. it meant so much to me that day when I went underneath the arches in Newcastle Uni to look at the uh, results, and I saw my results, so chuffed. Anyway, I then ended up working for ICI Middlesbrough, which was full-on hardcore graft, running chemical plants and 24-7 and knee-deep and digging myself out of problems and working with amazing people who knew lots of stuff and I knew nothing about it. Steep learning curve and great fun and brilliant people. But five years chemical plants, bit smelly, you know, it was never my thing. Um, and I wanted to do something else. So I thought I'd head off and do an MBA. And in the midst of studying for that, bizarrely, I ended up sitting on a bus next to next to the guy who was at uni with Andrew, the inventor of the Brompton, was a sort of old friend helping his mad inventor friend with his funny bike. And um, he said, no, you're just the sort of guy we need to help Andrew with his bike. And I've never even heard of it. And uh, 
never seen it. But I was sort of intrigued, engineering, bicycle, London, particularly the London bit, actually. I was 28, you know, that's where the cool people were. I, no disrespect to Middlesbrough, they weren't hanging out in Middlesbrough. And um, so I thought I'll do a couple of years, put the, put the MBA on ice, do a couple of years in London with a mad inventor with a bike. I mean, engineering, cool. Go back and do my MBA and off I go. And I set off on the journey and I've been there ever since because the bike so affected my life and it made me happy. And I saw how it did that yeah. for others. And that's pretty alluring. Amazing. Just chance. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So it's a kind of almost like a chance meeting and then 20 yes, years later, the here you are. Is, chance, it's a bit like people talk about luck or opportunities. I am of the opinion right. that you, these things don't come to you. You need to go to them. And in fact, my opinion is they're there all the time. There they go, floating past us all. The challenge is whether you're one of the people who decide to go, right, I'm going to get up and grab it. And maybe I don't like it and I let go. Yeah. But at least I'm going to keep going and having a crack. Or whether I'm just going to watch it go by and then complain when I, I don't feel like I've moved further forward. You, you know, that if, if things aren't going the way you want, you've got to do something. You've got to be proactive. You've got to smack yourself around the face and say, come on, this is no good. What are we going to do? How are we going to change? And, and, and get out there and, and do it because it won't happen. You can't wait for somebody else. You've got to do it yourself. That's spoken like a true entrepreneur. That is that is, that is entrepreneur snapshot right there. That's absolutely brilliant. Okay, so big question then. With that in mind, and we, you know, this is really a big question, so we're going to have to dig into some highlights. In the 20 years that we've just been, you know, from, from when you, that chance encounter to here where we are now, so much growth, so many significant things. Can you, can you kind of distill it into a few core milestones or can you go, there were some breakthrough moments or some key highlights and yeah, so please share those with us. There were about 40 of us turning over about 2 million quid. And Andrew, in many respects, had done all the hard work. He'd got the thing off the ground against all the odds. And right. since then, we, we've sort of gone from two mil to knock, well, to 100 mil. And we've gone from 40 staff to sort of 800 staff. And it has been an absolute roller coaster wow. ride of fun. Occasionally, the odd drama. And I think the most continuum of unified importance in that 20 years is ambition. And you have got to be ambitious, which is why I want to jump in that lift with Elon Musk, because, you know, I thought I was ambitious and he's in a different league. But if you look at it and, and, and when you come out with your ambition, if everyone says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really good. You're not being ambitious enough. Ambition is when you say something and everyone goes, oh, give me a break. That's a stupid idea. That, no way. We can't do that. That's nuts. <laughs> that's when you're about in the right place because you need ambition to bring people with you. And the first thing is they don't believe it's too much. And in my case, we were making about five or 6,000 bikes. And I decided we had no meetings, no budgets, no strategy. It was just do our best and hope for the best. And um, I wanted meetings. I wanted strategy. I wanted planning projects and um, which is what I was used to when I was at ICI. So I created this meeting called 25K. I found an old room that was full of Andrew's experiments and clutter. He, we had no money, so I had to go and empty this room. It was, 
heaving with, Andrew's a kleptomaniac, heaving with all sorts of dusty stuff. <laughs> I emptied it all out, got a stick, chucked it in the skip, got a hoover, hooved the floor. And then, of course, Andrew wouldn't give me any money for furniture because we didn't have enough. So I went to the Army Navy secondhand store, bought a, bought a big table and some, and some chairs, cost me peanuts, got it in there. So, right, we're having this meeting. We're having meetings. 25K. And basically, everyone said, well, well, that's a stupid name. Why is it called 25K? Well, I said, that's how many bikes we're going to make. We're going to make 25,000 bikes. And they all just said they refused even to entertain the title of the meeting because it was a ridiculous <laughs> title. It was not possible. We were doing 6,000. You couldn't do 25,000. Well, of course you can. And, and, you know, that was before we even got to the meeting. There was an enormous, you know, throwing up of the arms. And we had various. And, and so when the first meeting happened, I knew I, I was on my way before we even anyone said a word. The fact they turned up, they mentally got their head around the fact that this was even possible. So, wow. and every time we get somewhere and we start feeling comfortable, my job is to make us feel uncomfortable, to push ourselves out of our comfort zone, to strive for something that is just beyond reach and keep that ambition and that, that fear about how we're going to do it. And that keeps the company on edge. That probably ties in well with the next question, really, just about competition. You know, you've there's obviously a lot of competition out there, and people who want to steal that place. How do you how do you deal with that? The competition in your sector. The funny thing is, um, I'm not that interested in the competition. I'm interested in the customer. You can get so distracted peering into your belly button, wondering, looking over the fence and wondering what the neighbours are doing and looking over and seeing what they're doing in their garden and worrying about where they're going and looking at all the research and reading all their articles. I mean, quite frankly, my relationship is with my customer. That's what matters more than anything else. And I want to have customers that are delighted, yeah. that, that, that believe in what we're doing, that trust us, that tell their friends where this product has, has added value to their life. And I can't do that if my staff don't care. The only way you're going to have a delighted customer, if it's your staff care, you can do all the procedures in the world. But quite frankly, if the staff, if their heart's not in it, it's never going to be any good. And the customer can feel that in the product and in the service that you then give them. So for me, if you focus on the customer and you care about your staff, you will be better than the competition. Because most of the competition are worrying about shareholders and political nitwitting and the competition. And they're running around having millions of meetings. Customer. That's what matters. And, and, and then your staff to deliver that service. That's brilliant. And you've done, I'm reading up about, about the journey of Brompton Bikes a little, obviously, you know, before we came on here. I know that you've done lots of different there's been lots of different tactics and strategies you've employed to really keep customer at the centre of what you've done. So I'm even thinking about some mm. of the, the Brompton Urban Challenge, the Brompton World Championships, um, you know, the storytelling pieces that you do, development of accessories. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, how have you kept the customer at the heart of what you do over the last 20 years? Well, for starters, I am a customer, which is, you know, that really helps. Right. And we had an opportunity to move the factory out of London six years ago, and we didn't. We, we moved from Brentford to Greenford because the city has such an impact on us and our staff and, and the fact that we use the bike. So, and, and, and really, we want to have fun. You know, life's too short to be some super serious, 
like it's funny in 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 our lives with our families and our friends it always amuses me this so my great friends from uni my oldest friends first thing i do when i see them is abuse them i adore them to bits but you know we'll spend at least the first hour or two in fact the entire weekend abusing each other you know about the fact that somebody's got older bolder <laughs> fatter slower you know and that, and we're laughing our heads off and and so and yet in it, 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 with people you don't really know and certainly people you don't like you're super polite and you're sort of you know everything's perfect and actually I think we need to remember that work is living, work is life, and and your customers. You don't need to, to need to be so professional. You can be you can be having fun, but be very serious. You don't have to be serious to be serious. And I think that culture that we have at Brompton, we have fun, we have banter, we enjoy having fun with our customers, remembering that life is for living. And this product, we want to articulate what fun and freedom it brings and to try and do things that aren't corporate and that are a laugh. And, and it makes us feel human. And it actually allows our customers to trust us because we're not trying to be what we're not. And I think a lot of business is, is it's doing what it thinks it ought to be rather than just being who it is. And I think that's what we've done, the storytelling, the things, because we like it. It's funny. Half our staff are involved. We're whizzing around getting involved in the race. I've been racing on all of them, and I think they're brilliant. And, and that, I think, is, you know, some of these adverts and the, the corporate perfectness, is just, it's just not real. It's fake. And, it, and, and I know people do buy it, and some of these brands are enormous, but it, it just... It's virtually vomit-worthy for me. I mean, these perfect pictures with perfect people and perfect <laughs> immaculate cars and perfect children. So a, well, I mean, most of us, we just don't live in that world. Right. That's brilliant. And do you think that culture, I mean, you've just, I mean, you've just distilled something so brilliantly there. I want to ask the question around that. Do you think that culture that you've created internally then has helped with that innovation piece and that because you've innovated a lot over those 20 years as well, is, has that come out of that culture? Absolutely. The role of the leader at any level in the organization is, is not to do, but is to ensure that there is a cohesive ambition, that there is a singular understanding of where we're all going. So it's, it's setting the ambition and setting the target. Then you need to surround yourself with people who have the skills and knowledge that you don't have to help you get there. And... If you do that, which lots of companies do, they have vacancies, they need certain skills and experience from staff. But then bizarrely, when the staff join you, and I know this is the case because we've done it lots of times, the first thing they do when they've arrived, and they have a couple of weeks um, in, into the company, then say, right, well, what would you like me to do? And I look at them as if they're goggly-eyed and say, well, I haven't got a clue. I've got no idea. That's why I employed you, you muppet. Uh, don't ask me. You're the one with the knowledge and experience we've spent so long finding. I don't know what you should be doing. I know what That's we're trying brilliant. to achieve. Because you tell me what right. you need yeah. to get on and get us there. But don't tell me what to do. And the right. idea that the CEO doesn't have the answers, that isn't some amazing genius, some person who sits there and never gets it wrong and is Mr. Perfect. If you have that culture 
you will have no innovation. Because to innovate, you've got to get it wrong. You've got to make mistakes. You've got to not know the answers and search and find and go down a, a dead end and discover it is a dead end. And that ability to, again, be who you are and, and, and make mistakes, but then be, be relaxed enough to say, hey, it went wrong. And I'm telling everybody so we don't ever do it again. And that's really valuable is what it's all about. And that comes from the top. If the person at the top makes out that they're perfect, they never make mistakes, you're never going to innovate because everybody also has to be perfect and never make mistakes. Well, the way to never make mistakes is not to try anything different and just stick with what you've always done. Brilliant. Good answer. Excellent. And can I just then link that as sort of a similar question, but specifically around the role of, of digital on that journey as well? We're a digital agency. And I'm just really interested to find that, you know, from 2002 to 2022, it's a very different world, just in terms of consumer behavior, in terms of technology, you know, in terms of data and access to that. How's that journey looked, you know, again, high level, but how's that journey looked for Brompton over the last 20 years? So, we were so fortunate, and of course, we didn't know it at the time, to hit that moment. I mean, in some respects, I was the fortunate one, who just rocked up at just the right moment. Because poor old Andrew had been battling against the odds for a very, very long time. We, in 2002, we were on MS-DOS. I mean, literally, it felt like the 1980s. The rest of the world had websites. And Google, we were on MS-DOS. The website didn't really exist. Wow. I mean, digital, pigital. It was a complete farce. There was no digital anything. We still had all of our technical drawings with, with Andrew's you know, pencil on tracing paper. I mean, it's incredible. But even though we didn't have digital, what happened, which was so incredible for Brompton, was our customers had it. And we had no funds. We were a tiny little company. But we cared about our product and the product affected people's lives. And what happened was it was our customers through those early social media platforms who said, oh, my God, this thing is awesome. I love it. It's, it's changing my life. And it was that change, that digital impact that allowed us to reach people much, much bigger than you might have imagined, and, and in a way that we certainly didn't have the funds. That's, so actually it was a customer, it was the customers that almost brought you into that digital era, into that kind of transformation journey. Yes, and if you think about it, we, we used to make a brochure. That was about the long and the short of our, our, our awareness and our, and our ability and our funds. So that's not going to reach many people. But for the first time, there was this transformation going on pre-2000. If you wanted to be a global brand, you needed to have money. You needed to be able to spend the money on, on billboards, on ads. You know, it, there was such a barrier to entry to being a global brand because if you didn't have the money, you couldn't do it. What began to change was that the actual product became the really important thing because if the product or the service that you were doing was so damn good, that customers wanted to tell their friends about it, suddenly, where word of mouth used to be physically word of mouth, you talk to your neighbours, a few people at work, and it would get a small little reach, suddenly word of mouth became global, and it became viral. 
And that is, we hit that with a product that's awesome at just the right moment. And in that way, we saw awareness and brand building effectively delivered by our customers, which allowed us to focus on what we were really good at, which is the manufacturing, the engineering, product design. And for a long, long time, it was our customers who, who did the marketing for us. And they still do. Which is obviously the best form of marketing in many ways, right? Yes. Enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. And I can imagine just the assumption there then, looking at that journey from the early days to now, in terms of digital maturity, I can imagine that the kind of, I know that you you know, you know, offer subscriptions and there's apps yep. and obviously being a global brand, the role of digital is pretty intrinsic to that customer experience at the moment. It is. I mean, it is insanely powerful, exciting, um, but like other parts of business, it needs to be used with respect and because it's a double-edged sword and it's a, if it's well used and well articulated such that it adds value to the customer, then you have something brilliant. If it's abused and just sort of scattergunned everywhere, it becomes a pain in the bum. And I'm fully aware of it because I get monstrous amounts of unwarranted, annoying stuff right. um, on digital. Yeah. And I'm not saying we've got it right, but our ambition and our aim is to have sophisticated insights, sophisticated digital tools to offer choice to our customers, to enlighten our customers about something that's genuinely useful, that we know they're interested in. So we don't need to send them lots of information about products that they don't even own. We know what product they own. We know um, what they're interested in. So if something appears that, that, that really genuinely might be useful to them, we can let them know about it. And if we've got customers who don't need to own something, they can use it when they want to use it through our bike hire, or they can take it on subscription. So, but it's digital, like, like so many other innovations in life, um, needs to be it's not, a, it's not a silver bullet. It needs to be taken with care and to be used in a way that, that, that is proportionate and effective and ultimately comes back. The customer thinks, wow, that's so cool. That's so useful. Not, oh, not more dross. That's, can you shut up? I've had enough of that. And I've noticed, I've noticed, Will, all throughout that answer, you've talked about the customer time and time again and linking the, the, the digital journey and the assets back to what the customer wants. So I'm going to ask you another another question around that then. Where do you or do you have any thoughts or opinions at the moment about this, you know, Web3, that, you know, the the the, the changes in currencies, the changes, you know, in blockchain, the changes in, you know, looking at the metaverse and that that kind of whole space that's beginning to materialize in some ways quite rapidly, you know, um, where do you sit with that at the moment in terms of, you know, insights or opinions? So I think we need to just not get too caught up in how the world's going to transform itself in five minutes flat. Um, if you look at the bicycle, the bicycle in 1922 had two wheels, a chain, brake levers, and a crank. And the bicycle, 100 years later, has two wheels, a chain, a crank, 
and brake levers. The car, which is where there's been more R&D, more investment, probably than any other product, with the exception of probably the phone, is basically still a car. I mean, you know, you can pick up a 1950s car and lots of things have changed, but it's still a car. So things are changing. New technologies will come. And there are some fantastic tools that come from it. We have a Brompton Academy. So we are now able to train people all over the world using videos and training and in different languages. The, the, our ability to deliver a better service to our shops, we have 1,500 shops around the world, through this tool is fantastic. We now have um, th 3D um, Oculus in our London store, and that's going to be rolled out. Right. So you can actually, in time, you'll be able to go into any of our stores and visit our factory completely. You know, you can whiz around the factory. You can see everything. You can look in and see somebody brazing. So effectively, you're, you're taking somebody in an immersive experience to tell your story. So there are really, really exciting developments. But then, you know, in the world, we need to live a simpler life. We need to eat less meat. We've got a climate emergency. We, we've got to consume less. We need to have something that's better quality. It needs to be more sustainable and eco. So in some parts of the, 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 the world, we're getting very techy. But in some others, we're going back to basics because we need to work in, in conjunction with the planet. Right. So I think thinking that the latest technology is going to do, do everything, it's not. It's a rich contribution to the diverse development of where we're heading. But ultimately, we need to live in conjunction with the planet. And how we consume and how we engage, it needs to be consumer-facing, recognising the global challenges we face. And we can't ignore those because they are very real and again the solution personally i feel will come from business to a greater extent than politics the politicians are voted in every five years once they're in they, they sort of forget about it until a year before they want to be voted in again i have eight hundred thousand customers around the world they are voting for me every second of every day if if we don't care for our customers i could have something blow up in new zealand or in LA, or in Shanghai, and rip through our brand because we're not caring and we, we're, we're telling untruths. So you have to be in business, you have to be on your game the whole time. And the customers expect integrity, not perfection, because we're not perfect, but at least a level of integrity. And I think that demand from the customer will grow and, and business rightly should be expected to deliver more, not just for themselves, but for, for the community, for society and the planet. That's brilliant. That's, uh, you, you mentioned quite a few countries there around the, around the world, the Shanghai's, etc. What about Kent? Because there's lots in the news about that's going to be your next stop, your next home. So tell her, And it's also where Dan is. It's where Dan is now and where his office is. So... <laughs> Tell us about Kent. Again, there's nothing. When I've got really ridiculous ideas, I start telling people. Slightly quietly to start with, because occasionally, you know, they need to say to me, Will, that is, I mean, that really is just, you've gone too far. So at which point I get back in my box and I, you know, snuffle up, you know, walk off with my tail between my legs. <laughs> but, you know, if I get a bit of traction, oh, that's it. Oh, you know, that could be something. 
then I, I start telling more people. The more people you tell, if you tell enough people, it's like if you decide you're going to do a marathon, you start telling everybody, there's no going back because you've told so many flipping people it's too embarrassing. You can't now say you're not doing it. And that's slightly what happened here. We, we moved factory um, six years ago, as I said, from Greenford, sorry, from Brentford to Greenford. And, and we have a fantastic site. But even back then, we tried to buy our own land. We tried to build our own factory that reflected who we were. We couldn't do it. We were too small. And actually, we've got a great landlord. But there have been some amazing things that have happened through COVID, which have made people rethink how they want to live in cities. And that's been good for us because we need to change how people live in cities and remove cars and bring in active travel and clean air and all the other positive things that come with it. But one of the things that is not so positive is any big boxes, storage, you know, any of those industrial units, the, the, the rent has gone through the roof because there's huge demand for logistics hubs close to urban centres. So our rent and the projective rent is just going to go up and up and up and up. And also, we have very little space. So if we want to grow, we get broken up. And suddenly we're not all in one place, which is really important to the company that we are. So two years ago, we set about thinking, well, the mistake we made when we moved from Brentford to Greenford, we didn't give ourselves enough time to try and find a proper home for Brompton. So this time we're really going to give ourselves lots of time. And so um, we set about looking for somewhere that could be our home, that where we could build something that reflects who we are, that, that really shouts out about the role of business in society, about sustainability, about urbanisation. And we didn't want to be hidden away on some industrial site. We want to inspire the next generation of makers, designers, engineers. We want to be right in the heart of a city. Um, and also we need to have space to grow. And, and, and we didn't know where we were going to end up. And we did search high and low across the UK. And I have to say, Kent was not initially even in my field of vision. I was off in the sort of Birmingham, Manchester, you know, Sheffield, Newcastle, industrial heartland. But what we found in Kent was the most dynamic, enthusiastic, get up and go, entrepreneurial group of counsellors, developers, uh, architects and community. And for us, it's an amazing spot because it allows us to retain a strong link with London, which is so important to our brand. It allows us to bring talent from London to our facility because it'll be half an hour on the train and nowadays two or three days a week at work is more than you need. There is a fantastic community of of, of education centres. We've got Canterbury, Ashford. There's a great pool of talent. And also, we are even closer to Europe. We're a global brand. We want to be able to jump on the train and go to Paris or to Brussels and engage with that global community. So, you know, it's we're at the beginning of the journey. You know, it is not a slam dunk. There are many, many challenges between now and actually producing bikes from Ashford, but it is tremendously exciting. And did I read that you're not going to have any car spaces out in the car park? Yes, and <laughs> that is 
It's a little bit more sophisticated than that. So if you're bored, go onto Google Earth and have a look at Ashford. It is riddled in enormous great swathes of concrete with tons and tons of car parking spaces taking up precious planet Earth with nobody in them. There are no cars in the car parking spaces. So obviously the starting point is we would like to make it practical and useful and easy for people to come to work by walking or by cycling. There will be some people who can't do that. But let's not go and, you know, just sort of paint another great slab of concrete on Mother Earth. Let's just use what's already there. And, you know, we can create an app. <laughs> we can go to all the local businesses and say, look, can we use your parking spaces that are not being used? And if somebody wants to visit or our staff are coming, they'll drive somewhere and they'll either pedal five minutes or they'll walk five minutes, which will be good for them. Um, but we don't need more car parking spaces. We need to innovate. We need to think differently. We need to use digital tools to be more effective with what we've got. We can't keep consuming and slapping down more concrete. So we've got to be clever and smart. And, and if, you, if you create um, ambition, we're not going to have parking spaces, it creates innovation. Well, you can't do that. Well, why can't we? Can't we find a solution? That doesn't mean no one can come with a car. We've got to think of it differently. And that's what we're trying to do. That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I think, you know, as, as Phil said earlier, we are an agency in Kent. You're already the noise and the buzz and the potential, you can feel it. And I think for like a, an economy that sort of sits outside of one of the major city economies, you can already feel the kind of, wow, this is going to up the game. This is going to cause innovation. It will cause other businesses oh. to succeed as well around it. Yes, and, and one of our challenges is in where we are at the moment is we manage, and it's one of the reasons we're so international is because our staff, because of London, are so international. And when you employ people from all over the world, they come along and say, well, why aren't you selling in where I'm from? Oh, but, oh, it's easy. I can introduce you. It gives you the confidence to be more ambitious on an international platform. And we don't want to lose that. But one of the problems that we found is, you know, we have young staff, they join us. It's great. It's all brilliant. London, love it. Then they find a partner. They might start a family. First little baby rocks up, all brilliant. You know, they're absolutely knackered and their eyes are like this. And it's all very exciting. It sort of works. But if they decide to have two children the wheels start falling off because it's so expensive. And, you know, you're suddenly realising your, your, your priorities have changed and actually a teeny weeny little flat and then you might have to work a second job and like, hold on, where's this going? So, so if we can find somewhere where there is, you might start your career with this in London, but you might then move out and find yourself a nice place near Ashford. So there are some other interesting opportunities that we've thought about in terms of again giving our staff a better quality of life and on the point of staff i mean of you know in terms of the growth plans and you know moving moving to ken how how do you see it i know there's been some talk as well about the sort of role of working with universities yes other educational establishments is that a key part of you know building building brompton into the next 20 years so we are building our home I mean, the whole aim is that, you know, we're, we're laying deep roots. And if you're going to deliver value to your customer, 
You've got to be smart, not just in the product, but in everything that you do. Everything is room for innovation. We introduced a nine-day fortnight at Brompton in 2008, long before anyone thought that was possible, because we realised our staff all want to go mountain biking at the weekend, and who wants to jump in the traffic on, on a Friday night? Thursday night's much better. They're all working too many hours. They're doing 80 hours in nine days. Let's do a nine-day fortnight. So, but, so it, in moving to Ashford, we need to think about how we can leverage what's there and do it in a smart way and work with others to create two and two gets four, not two. You know, and, and so working with colleges, working with universities, there is no um, engineering degree for bicycles. You can do aero engineering. You can get automotive engineering. No one in the UK is doing a specialist course for bicycles. And the way a bike works, and, and you, you could expand that into light electric vehicles. It is a different vehicle to an aircraft and a different vehicle to a car. Closer to an aircraft, for sure, because weight is really important. But it's, you're not going to fall out of the sky. So, and, and that specialism doesn't exist. So you know, there are really exciting opportunities for us to work with the colleges and universities and we're not in a rush and we've got time and we're busy making bikes in London so you know, we can we can start some of this work earlier in anticipation of, of of the move which is which is exciting and work with the team we've got already brilliant what a great way to end this episode and just to say as a Kent-based agency it really is inspiring to hear your vision for Ashford and for Kent and for the next generation of employees and students and to think that an incredible brand like Brompton Bikes is going to be just down the road from where I live. So thank you so much for being on this podcast with us, William. Many thanks. We were having so much fun in this episode that we forgot to ask William my usual final question. But I think that's fine. And I think we've had enough fun for one day. So as always, please do subscribe, leave us a review, share this episode. And uh, not much left for me to say other than take care. See you soon for our next guest, Minimal, CEO of Design Council. Take care, all. <laughs>